Hi, I'm Shane Safir. And I'm Alcine Mumby, and this is Street Data Pod, where we dream with you about next-generation schools that affirm, love, and value every learner. Here we have conversations about healing, hope, and listening at the margins. Street Data Pod friends, we have two announcements to share. First, you can get 20% off Street Data on Corwin Press's website if you use discount code STREETDATA, all caps. Second, we would love to hear your stories and questions about how Street Data Pod is shifting the way you move as an educator. If you have a comment or a question about any episode, you can leave us a voicemail at the new Street Data Pod phone number, 415-335-9997. That's also on our website. You can also send us an email to streetdatapod at gmail.com. We can't wait to hear street data from you all, and we might even feature your voicemail on a future episode. Today, pod friends, we have the opportunity to dream with Dr. Jamila Dugan, who's a friend of the pod, like she's going to be on every season. She doesn't know that yet, but she's going to be on every season. And the incomparable Dr. Lisa Delpit. Dr. Lisa Delpit is the recently retired Felton G. Clark Distinguished Professor of Education at Southern University in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Over four decades, Dr. Delpit has used her training in ethnographic research to spark dialogue between educators on, quote, finding ways and means to best educate marginalized students, particularly African-American and other students of color. Her incredible work has earned her a MacArthur Genius Award, and we are deeply honored to welcome Dr. Delpit to the program today. And Dr. Jamila Dugan is the co-author of Street Data and a leadership coach and a researcher. She is the founder of JD Learning Partners, specializing in equity-centered leadership development across the education and public service sectors. She has served as a coach for teachers and as a school leader and is a proud daughter, wife, and mama of three beautiful children. Welcome our friend to the podcast, Dr. J. Thank you so much for having us. I cannot tell you how excited I am and humbled I am to be with all of you, especially Mama Lisa. I'm so grateful. Thank you. Thank you. Great to be here, Alcine. I've been like nerve sighted this morning <laughs> to speak with Dr. Delpit. You're just a personal shero and heroine, and I've followed your work, your brilliant work for decades, and I'm so excited to get to listen and learn from you and Dr. J, who I always learn from as well. So we're going to start with a warm-up question. If each of you wants to share, what is something you have read lately, an article, a book, a poem, anything that kind of captured your imagination and why? Well, I had not heard of, and I understand it's been around for a while, this notion of Afro-pessimism. Scholars are now taking on this concept as a way of analyzing data and writing their ideological perspectives in the sense of Afro-pessimism, which has just thrown me completely for a loop. I've been thinking about that for so much time. It's like, y'all didn't know that that was a problem, <laughs> that white racism was a problem. You didn't know that, huh? We have not done our job <laughs> if you didn't know that. <laughs> and it's like folk are being surprised by the way that the larger society is viewing Black people and looking at it not only as something new, but it is very philosophically been about the Black body is almost the source of not being human. And that's how people are being looked at. 
And I just have been so kind of annoyed that folk are spending so much time trying to define themselves through the eyes of people who hate them. I mean, let's make sure that our kids and our folk are taken care of. We don't have time to worry about how other people are seeing us. So as I thought about Afro-pessimism, I was thinking about something that I had read by Toni Morrison. And she says, The very serious function of racism, which is distraction. It keeps you from doing your work. It keeps you explaining over and over again your reason for being. Somebody says you have no language, and so you spend 20 years proving that you do. Somebody says your head isn't shaped properly, so you have scientists working on the fact that it is. Somebody says that you have no art, so you dredge that up. Somebody says you have no kingdoms, and so you dredge that up. None of that is necessary. There will always be one more thing. Yes. <laughs> wow. Mm. Yeah. Speechless. How are we mic dropping and we haven't even gotten to the first real question, but that's a different story. Oh, God. <laughs> Dr. J, do you want to comment on this idea of Afro-pessimism or add something else you've read that's kind of captured your imagination recently? Well, as you do most of the time, you bring in something that just sparks so many things that I'm thinking about and is related to what I was saying that I'm reading that is even still hard to talk about, which is The Bluest Eye from Toni Morrison. I had just watched her documentary and wanted to go back into the beauty of her words. What she's able to do in The Bluest Eye is convey that notion, that distraction Mm. that you just talked about so vividly and so painfully in a way that is so real. This little girl and this story cannot see outside of the eyes of whiteness. She cannot do it because everything, everyone, including the people who love her most are stuck in that too. Mm. And so that takes me to a very painful place. But what I love to think about from what you just said with Toni Morrison is the idea of the distraction. But I just came back from Ghana. And let me just tell you that distraction does not exist for me in this moment in time. And every time I go, I'm like, thank you, um, Miss Morrison, because it is such a heavy distraction. And I just think there's a lot of connections to what I was reading and kind of what you just just mentioned. Oh my gosh. Uh, Well, thank you for sharing your thoughts, uh, both of you all. So this first question goes to you, Dr. Delbit. Tell us about yourself as a young teacher. What did your classroom look and feel like? And how have those experiences informed your scholarship over time? You know, that could take a book. So I'll try to <laughs> it really did help me begin to find out what was going on. So I had gone to white teacher education training at Antioch and not to a historically black school because that that was right at the time when black kids from the South could go to predominantly white schools. And that was seen as, you know, progress. 
So when I got to Philadelphia, it was that was also the time of open classrooms that kind of it was called alternative, but not the way we use alternative now schooling. And so I went to a school called Durham, where I did my student teaching and then had my own classroom. And I think 40% of the kids were from Society Hill, and 60% of the kids were from South Philly, which at that point meant Black kids and a few poor white kids. I was doing the open classroom model, doing what I was taught. And I began to see that the Black kids were not succeeding in a way that the white kids seem to be flourishing. That's when I just had an inkling of this notion of culture in education because I hadn't before then. And I had not read anything that was written about it to that point. There were a few Black teachers, older Black teachers in the school, and they were sort of looked down on by the younger white teachers who were more schooled in the open classroom model and uh, alternative education. But I began to see that the Black kids in their classes seemed to be doing pretty well. So I began to look at what they were doing. Now, again, mind you, there was nothing that I knew of that I could read because, you know, integration was relatively new, having poor Black kids and well-to-do white kids in the same space, even in the North. So all of that was going on. And I learned from those Black teachers. Then I went to grad school a few years after that, and I began to understand that what I was seeing were two things. That was one was culture and the other was bias in the sense that whatever the black kids and the black teachers were doing was not the most recent marvel. Mm. So I think that's how it has affected me. I've been studying that ever since, I think. And what do kids need? Black kids needed skills because their parents weren't teaching them that and because they didn't have that. The white kids needed to know how to, I mean, when the paint spilled on the floor, you don't stand there and cry. There's a way that you can go clean it up, which the black kids understood because they had had the experience of being and doing in real life. You said a handful just in that one right there. Thank you for that image. I will not forget that image. One of the emerging themes in this podcast over time has been, what does it mean to work across generations in the pursuit of educational justice, the intergenerational work? And we would love to hear from you, Dr. J, how you and Dr. Delpit came into relationship and into community together and what you're learning and navigating in this intergenerational community you're a part of. To even be in this space right now in this virtual room is just a reminder of why these spaces are so important. And I, I mean that across, you know, generations, across, I mean, just so, across so many things. So I, I just, I feel very honored to be in this space together with you all and, and Mama Lisa. And I think it was just serendipity how we came into a relationship. I was very lucky a couple of years ago to get a random email about a retreat with Black women leaders. And then I was like, I'm sorry, who's going to be there? <laughs> Does that say Dr. Lisa Delpit? Does that say 
Dr. Gloria Ladson, does that say Dr. Joyce? This is, this can't be like a real thing. And so <laughs> someone in my organization sent it to me. I was like, we're definitely going right. And there was like 25 of us and I'm the only one that went. I, I was astonished by this. And when I went and got to sit at the feet of these elders and Dr. Akosua Lusain, who put this together, I just could not believe that this is not a part of our day-to-day interaction when we are thinking about education, to be in that kind of space. And so in my first year, I had the pleasure of being a part of another group. But in my second year, I was so blessed to be placed in Dr. Lisa Delvitt's circle. And one of the gifts that she gave us, which is a gift that's still going today, is that she kept circles going for us every Mm. month. And one of the things, I don't know if you remember saying this, Mama Lisa, but you had said that you wanted to start having teachers at your home. And we were like, but can we be a part of that too? (laughs) Even though not all of us are teaching. And you were so gracious to say, yes, I, I will, you know, continue to be with you all. And so in that we come together often and we just are with each other. There's no agenda or anything. We're just here to be together. And we're in Mm. all different places. We have teachers, you know, we have administrators, we have folks who are in the academy, but we just are there to be. Being in this space has made me find myself again. It's allowed me to remember. I have been around elders my entire life. My aunts are my, have been my greatest mentors. I don't necessarily think about it, but being back in this space is like, oh yeah, you remember how you, you know, it's not to say I didn't think I had knowledge, but girl, the amount of knowledge that you have been gaining like your whole life. I mean, how could I ever second guess who I am and who I can be and who our kids can be in education when these are the people that I'm surrounded by? And so I think I don't see myself as necessarily navigating the intergenerational space as much as I'm like, not only can I not leave the intergenerational space, we have got to get our kids in an intergenerational space in the education space. Because so many of our kids, especially Black children, I would say children of color in general, spend time intergenerationally. I mean, that's how most of our families are structured. But when you get to school, that's so quickly removed. I would say I'm mostly in a place of gratefulness, and honor and how is this my life that I am given this gift? So many different things have manifested in my world. And then with us as the women in this circle, as a result of being in this space. So it's just affirmed a lot of the things that I didn't realize had been a part of my life for so, so long. You are all elders in training. So all of a sudden, you know, you get to a place and you're an elder and go, whoa, So it's important to know that, you know, your time is coming and you need to understand that and prepare for it in a sense of being aware of what it is you are learning in this journey as you proceed. Okay, everybody who's listening, they're all crying. So... Lord. Let me, me, I can't start because then I won't be able to, to talk, but... 
The second thing I just wanted to mention about schools is that Bob Moses was doing the algebra project. We lost him a couple of years ago, but he did it modeled on the way SNCC worked and, and the civil rights movement. But he worked with middle school when he was working with me with high school kids, I guess, primarily from one of the lowest performing schools in, in Miami. And when we had our celebration at the end, he called up all the younger kids who were in, just in the audience who had come for the dinner or to see their older siblings. And he called them and asked them to make a circle. Then he called the kids who were in the algebra project, the high schoolers, and he asked them to make a circle around the younger children. And he told them this is who you are responsible for. And it starts now. I think we definitely need to make sure that we get that sense of responsibility to our children in an academic sense, in an academic setting, not just in their home settings where they do have it. Listen, if that's not a plug for looping, I don't know what is. Hello. Right. <laughs> because that's that's what, you know, Shane and I worked in schools that looped. The 10th graders would mentor the 9th graders and they would set the culture of this is what we do in our classroom. This is what this school means to us. And this is how you will behave in this space. We adults had very little you know, besides big things, but it goes to that intergenerational. And we saw their behaviors just elevate, right? They walked with pride because they knew that younger folks were watching them. Thank you for the reminder and the invitation into what it means to be an elder in training. That really landed with me in a deep way and is something I'm thinking about a lot these days. So Dr. Delphit, we wanted to go back to the article, your seminal article from 1988 that Alcine referenced, The Silence Dialogue, that became a prophetic book on educating other people's children. And in that book, you discuss this skills process divide as a false dichotomy, right? You reframe it as this false binary that really leaves many marginalized students outside of the culture of power. And we wanted to ask if you would be willing to comment on how that tension, skills process, skills process, how that's manifesting today, and how can we reframe it in ways that really center Black students, center learners at the margins, so that they receive an education that's worthy of their brilliance and worthy of their promise? Well, you know, the science of reading is interesting because nobody seems to really know what it is. They continue, a lot of people continue to suggest that it is only phonics, which if there is an origin, the journalist who wrote the article about it talked about five components, phonics, phonemic awareness, fluency, comprehension, and vocabulary. And those are all elements that kids need in order to learn to read. When my daughter was little and going around, you know, going mum, 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 and then mommy goes, yes, mum, 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 Maya, and mum, 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 mommy, and here are the magnetic M on the refrigerator. That's what, you know, middle-class parents do all those things that I just talked about. They read the story at night and all so forth. So if that doesn't happen, then a lot of kids need instruction in that. If the argument is saying that phonics is bad, every Black 
instructor that I know of who has done amazing work, like Mary Rhodes Hoover and Augusta Mann. We've lost Mary, but Augusta is still working in her 90s, I think, either 80s or 90s. And she's actually doing work to get her videos of the kind of work that she did. They all say, you know, phonics is, is very important because if you don't have a parent going around with Maya, then you need to learn it. Now, is that enough? And the answer is no. All of that is necessary, but insufficient. The other piece that Mary Rhodes Hoover and Augusta Mann do and talk about, and those who have been successful with Black kids do, is they affirm their humanity, they create relationships with them, they make them feel that they are a part of the literacy club, so to speak. There is nothing that they can't do and that books belong to them. And that their history is important so that their legacy, their intellectual legacy from Black folk, but also their historical legacies, their people did not start as slaves. And they need to also have that sense. And that's what's usually missing. It would be, I want everybody to have all those five components in their instruction, but I know that's not going to be enough if kids don't believe that they can learn, that anybody, that people who look like them have learned, have written, have produced, they also need to know that. First of all, thank you for sharing that because the debate is driving me. I can't even handle it, to be honest. It, it, it's just really frustrating. But I just wanted to add this. When I went to become a teacher, I was taught how to teach kids how to read. There are so many people who do not learn how to teach kids how to read. So my early childhood, which we don't even have early childhood coaches anymore, Terry came in and showed me when your babies are learning how to read left to right, you have to help them with their finger. Yes. Phonics has to happen every single day. Mm -hmm. Phonics looks like this. When you do word study, it needs to look like this. When you do guided reading, I still stand behind guided reading, right? When you do guided reading, it follows this particular structure. When you are on the carpet and you have a story, you should be pulling out this academic vocabulary. Mm. All of those things at that time were a part of balanced literacy, but those five components you mentioned were a part of it. So I just think that when people are not taught how to teach kids how to read, just don't expect people to learn that you can't do it. Yeah. Second of all, people have been teaching kids how to read for a really long time and they didn't call it any of these things. That's been happening. Kids have learned how to read and kids during segregation learned how to read with a whole bunch of black like teachers. Slavery. Right. Slavery. Right. Did, did the most reading coming right out of that. Right. And didn't have any of these things. So I think like just the language us forgetting that people have taught kids how to read without all of this for a long time, it just drives me up the walls. And then the third thing I will say is I was lucky enough to learn how to read from a Black coach and a Black teacher. And let me tell you something, when I taught that phonics lesson, you better believe Anna Mae Schuster came into my classroom and was like, so 
that's not how that works. I will be in your classroom tomorrow to show you how you need to do it properly. And so I think when I got to see her have this light in her eyes and show kids these letters that a, you know, pretend person had written them that was related to affirmation at the same time and this quick moving at, at the same time with how she was doing the phonics, it helped me see not only the practice, but that piece you're talking about with affirmation and students being a part of this process and almost it being a, a kind of a gift to all of us to be able to engage in this idea of literacy together. So just all of the things that you said, I think are so important. And I just think this debate really needs to end and we need to go back to the basic. Thank you both. I mean, your answers combined, I feel like are so helpful to listeners and just expand the discourse, expand the frame, right? Because it, it feels to me like this debate is just a microcosm of American political debates where everything gets dichotomized and it's this or that and we pen swing back and forth and you're offering us this really holistic it's like do children deserve to read can we learn to teach them to read do should they be seen and witnessed in their full humanity it's all the things right it's not one thing and so thank you for lifting the conversation to a higher level and and really really centering children in it Dr. Delpit writes on page 296, the dilemma is not really in the debate over instructional methodology, but rather in communicating across cultures and in addressing the more fundamental issues of power of whose voice gets to be heard and determining what is best for poor children and children of color. So I want to ask you, Jamila, this idea about communicating across cultures and addressing cultures of power, what are some ways of being or practices in classrooms that speak to the possibility of sharing power and centering student voice? And where have you you seen some of these promising or emergent pedagogical practices? Yeah, there's three things that I'm thinking about with that. And I'll just start um, one with Yuming and Woodridge, where I got to be a teacher. First of all, there's something about the belief that children can. The end, the belief that children <laughs> can have a voice. They do have a voice. In certain schools I've been in, that belief is so clear. It's not even a question. And, you know, unfortunately, not every school gets that. And I had the uh, luxury of being at schools across lots of different cultures where the belief that kids have a voice was there. And so the fact that you would present your learning was not a strange thing. That's something that you would do. The fact that you would write well is not a strange thing. The fact that you would be able to have leadership was not a strange thing. That was just kind of an expectation because we believe kids are able to do that. So that's the first thing this piece around belief is it's not, I wouldn't even, sometimes I have a hard time with like high expectations is a really great thing. That's like a baseline thing, right? Belief in children. That's not a cool thing. It's like a baseline thing. This is not even to the special sauce piece. Second to that, I think coming uh, from Accra, Ghana, a couple of weeks ago, I had the chance to be in school and you all kind of talked about this with looping, but at the school that I was at, the teacher could be out of the classroom for 30 minutes and kids were just fine because first of all, the culture was there, but second, they had classroom officers who were actually responsible. And I'm not talking about classroom officers like police, classroom officers who were culture holders. And those classroom officers were nominated by everyone in the school, by staff and also their 
their fellow students. And those student officers obviously are leaders in the classroom and you respect those kids in the class. And so I think leadership roles for kids in the classroom, we have seen this time and time again. Remember way back when we used to talk about classroom jobs for students who might need special attention, right? Like we have seen that that works, right? When you are the person who gets to write the morning message in the morning or whatever the case is, it also allows them to share power. So many kids feel like they are powerless. It's not that they are powerless, but they feel powerless because you give them no power. Not only do you give no power, but you take power away from them consistently. And then we get into the idea of taking away humanity, which is really taking away power. So I think that second level of just giving students leadership role in the classroom allows them to share power. Students being in adult spaces, not all of them, let me just be clear, but a lot of adult spaces is showing and demonstrating our commitment to sharing power. So I'll give you a couple of examples. Shane writes about this in the book. Alcine has practiced this so much, and this comes from indigenous cultures. Kiva panels, where students are in the space and they are able to share their experience and you adults have to respond to what the students are saying. That allows them to actively be in the space. Students as co-designers. We are working with some students in Abbotsford right now where they are co-designers of what is supposed to happen in the classroom. That demonstrates to them that they have power and they have voice. You don't need to give a whole bunch of lip service to, oh, I care about what you think and all that. And then you do or don't do something with what I said. Let me be a designer with you. And again, I think it's important to just mention, kids don't have all the answers. Adults have answers too. It is the combination and the coming together of what I know as an adult, right? As a guide. And what you know, as someone who are in the lived experience of a youth, that makes this really special. To this piece around intergenerational, just an example of a real life thing that happened out of nowhere that I don't think we expected. Mama Lisa was invited to speak at university. I happened to be invited to speak at the same university. And my daughter happened to be with me at this time. And we randomly ended up on a panel, the three of us. And so here's Mama Lisa speaking from her perspective, me speaking from my perspective and my daughter who was nine years old at the time being on that panel speaking from her perspective and so in this it wasn't a conversation around like here's what we think we should do for youth here's what we think we should do for educators you know all across these different spectrums it was us there talking at the same time about our experiences and let me tell you Gia came back and she ran for treasurer at school she became a part of the safety patrol she develops teacher tools because she really believes her voice matters. And it does. It really, really does. And I don't know if this is true for Mama Lisa, but I'm sure it was like, oh, you know, my little baby's up there. They gave like hugs and, you know, kisses and all of that. And I'm just in the middle, like, I can't believe this is happening. And look at the power of our voices across generation. And to me, if we could start to really bring that into the classroom and not just across generation, but like, Brie, I remember doing a project where we brought the folks who handle food and the janitor and the aides and all together to say, how are we a school community together? And who are we responsible, similar to what you talked about earlier? That is really making not only student voice 
at the center, yeah. but everyone at the center. I know that you as a mom were like, whoa, look at my kid here. I mean, I have been called in when I've been in schools a lot of times to uh, <laughs> when the kids, sometimes when the kids have managed to run a teacher out because <laughs> they needed somebody to be in the room. In one class, the kids just said they weren't doing any more work because they did. the teacher didn't know <laughs> what, what she was doing. doing. But in any case, in all of these classrooms, I had not planned to go in. They hadn't planned to ask me, but there was no adult to be in the room. So I would go in, but I would ask them to tell me about sometimes what is a good teacher? What do teachers need to do? And they were always phenomenal. You know, I think back on my mom, who was such a brilliant person in that regard. And I didn't realize it when I was growing up, but she raised my nephew and I was in college and I would get upset. You let him talk to you like that. And she would say, if he can't stand up for himself to me, then he can't stand up for himself in the world. I learned that kids have a voice from my mom, who was such a good um, caretaker of that. Thank you all for that, Jamila. I love that, especially this invitation to not just position these student voice moments outside of the classroom, right? That's what we're seeing a lot in the work is it's like, oh, we'll do a professional learning and listen to some students. And it just becomes, frankly, a tokenizing equity trap the way that you write about in chapter two of Street Data. And so what does it look like to actually orient our daily pedagogy to student voice. What does that look like? And what opportunities can we bring to bear? And so Dr. Delpit, your beautiful 2012 book, Multiplication is for White People, contains a chapter about warm demander teachers in the lives of children of poverty. And we were reading that in preparation for this again. And in that chapter, you define a warm demander as a teacher who expects a great deal of their students, convinces them of their own brilliance, and helps them reach their potential in a disciplined and structured environment. Could you talk a little bit about the roots of this concept in community and in the literature? And then what do people get wrong about the idea of warm demander? Well, I think it's always existed in our communities. It's like you are pushed to do your very best. And if you're not doing it, then somebody's going to get on your case about it. And the understanding is if people didn't believe in you, they wouldn't be pushing you. And that's what, you know, happens in a lot of classrooms. A friend of mine sent her son to a predominantly white Catholic school. She saved up her money to do that. It was supposed to be a really good school. Orrin came home with C's and Charlotte went to school to find out about it. And the teacher's response was, you shouldn't get on his case. He's doing really well for him. And I think that has happened in too many schools that if you don't have a belief in the kids, you don't push them. What you're making me think, Dr. Delphit, is an interaction that I had with my nephew. I call him Boo Bear. And he was trying to do this thing. He'd built this thing in his Legos, and he's trying to move it across three different textures of the floor. And the, the chain keeps breaking, and he, he's try this is like his 10th try, right? And I said, Boo Bear, I believe that you are going to be able to do this. And I said, I think if you just go a little bit slower, I think you'll be able to actually do it. And he looks at me in the most innocent way, and he says, well, Auntie Alcine, if you believe I can do it, then I know I can do it. Think 
about the power. If every teacher or adult that a kid interfaced with, right, it's the belief because that's how kids really believe, you know, our words have power. And so if we were to speak belief into them, they will be able to do those things that even they believe is right outside of their reach. Now, what people get wrong is sometimes people interpret that as just, quote, yelling at kids and being mean to kids or not treating kids with respect. And those are the things that I see problematic. Some of the, I forgot what they called them, the charter schools that- Excuses. Right. Say it again. The no excuses excuses. schools. Yeah, Mm -hmm. no excuses. No excuses, right. No excuses schools. There are all kinds of demands that are made of kids that have nothing to do with their brilliance. It's like silent lunches and walking in a straight line and never talking. They're just things that do not have kids' best interest at heart. And so I think that's the thing that I worry most about, that it's yelling without the love. And the love has to be there first, the love and the belief in the kids and the belief in the kids' futures. I'm sitting with this phrase in my heart from what you just shared, Dr. Delpit, of like, to demand is not to diminish. So often, I think teachers think demanding means diminishing. And we don't need to dehumanize anybody to have high expectations, right? That's not the game. So thanks for really clearly articulating that confusion that I think a lot of people have. Bridging into chapter nine of Street Data, in the book, we talk about this concept of warm demander as applied to adult-to-adult relationships. And we were wondering what you see as some equity traps and tropes that lie in waiting as adults attempt to call each other in to providing high-quality learning experiences for students at the margins. What have you seen or what do you fear in that? I have so many feelings about this. So you know I've been obsessed with language lately and terms and what terms do to people. Mm. So on the most basic answer to this question, I think a trap around this is doing it, right? The doing equity trap. Okay, so we need to do warm demanders. So let's get the warm demander training. Okay, it looks like three steps. You learn these three steps and you get in that classroom and you do that. I guess for some people that works. And I think if we miss something really important, it often doesn't work. What I really want to bring into this relates to what I talk about in Equity Traps and Tropes, was it just, which is the idea of fluency. And do you understand what you are actually trying to do? Some of the issue comes from us turning these words into structure, which becomes steps. And so now when I'm trying to hold you accountable, I'm like, did I do this thing first? Did I do this next thing first in order for me to be a warm demander? Because that's what's important for me to do. Or are you trying to get with a person and let them know what they did was inappropriate and it was not in service of kids. And therefore, this is what you think about that, what you want to know, what they think about that. And here's how we're going to move forward. In my family, that might just be keeping it real. I'm just going to be real with you about what's going on. The trap is when you see it as like a checklist of things to do so that I hold somebody accountable. Can we just bring it down and be humans? 
I think we're really losing this in schools and quite honestly have lost it. This is an individual who signed up to be a teacher or an administrator or whatever to support children. When we support children, that looks like this, whatever you have decided that is in your school vision, but it also looks like what that person believes it is from the most abundance type place, right? When you go and you start diminishing kids, I don't know if that matches up to the vision you have or I have or our school has. So can we talk about that? Let's make it about that as opposed to, again, me trying to do this in a, a in a set of steps. So I think we have to kind of bring it down a notch and also acknowledge that it's hard. It's really, I, I do not like having to tell, you know, when I was an administrator, having to tell a teacher that they're about to be held accountable for something. It's not fun. I, I have to have a lot of coaching conversations before I even do it. Let's be honest about that. It requires vulnerability to do. But once you get past that, this is really a conversation about the people we're saying we care about. We're saying that we care about kids. We're even saying that we, I mean, it's important to know too, that we care about each other. I care about you. I believe that you are going to be excellent, that you can be excellent. We have to be careful that because we're getting all these messages about stereotypes with us, that we don't overly go and move from that place of demanding to diminishing. We are also inundated with messaging about who we are supposed to be in school. So I think there's nuanced differences in terms of how we show up with this idea of warm demander, but I think cultural context is really important and how you're positioned. We all have work to do in this vein of holding kids accountable to their brilliance. I'm holding you accountable to your brilliance. I'm not holding you accountable to some arbitrary thing so that you can get a metric that we're supposed to get. We want to invoke another elder or an ancestor now, Dr. Bell Hooks. And she's written a lot around how to infuse love in your pedagogy as a teacher, right? Bell Hooks talks about love as the practice of freedom and writes that as long as we refuse to address fully the place of love and struggles for liberation, we will not be able to create a culture of conversation where there is a mass turning away from an ethic of domination. So as we move to close, Dr. Delpit, comment on what you believe is the role of love and loving other people's children in pursuit of educational justice and transformative pedagogy. I believe from my spiritual space that we are all connected, that we are all not only responsible for each other, but a part of each other. And that anything that happens to one of us happens to all of us. So when we look at other people's children, then we need, I believe, to see them as ours. Oof. My daughter is adopted. I in a way, not really now, but I know early on, felt even more responsible because she was somebody else's child. Mm. And I had put myself in a position to say that I will give her the best life she can have. And I think if we are teachers and we're looking at somebody else's child, then we have to have that same sense that I have an even stronger responsibility for this child than if it were mine or if I had birthed it because somebody has given me the gift of saying that you 
can take the thing that's most important to me and grow it into its best self. So I cannot go into a school without feeling a sense of love. My first love starts with the children, but it also goes to the teachers because what I usually do because of me, I look at the teachers and I imagine them when they were little kids and what it was, if I see something that they're doing that I don't like, what happened when they were little kids that got them to this space that helps me approach them in the way that I would approach a child to recognize your humanity and your right to be in this world and to help you become the best divine person that you can be. I'll see you need some Kleenex. <laughs> I should know. Like, I should have a box of tissue. That <laughs> that took me out. Because I think about, you know, my mom is an ancestor. And I think about the seriousness to which she would she would walk me to the bus stop every morning and kiss me. Until I was like eight or nine. And start my day. Because I was her most precious gift to the world. And thank God I had educators that felt that. And if I didn't trust and believe my mom was there she is my best gift to this world. We have a responsibility to cultivate whoever she is so that she can become whoever she's supposed to be in this world. And that's what I hope for everybody's child, everybody's child. And it breaks me when that is not the case. But I just thank you for that visual of like, oh yeah, we're cultivating and our the families have trusted us to grow their humans. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. We're so glad to have had this conversation and and to bring it to our audience, to our listeners. This has been a very emotional conversation. When you asked me about how we came to be, a part of me wants to be like, look at God. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. The the manifestation is just crazy. So I just appreciate you all for having me. Mama Lisa, I've told you a million times, what would I do without you? I can't wait to see you later on today. And it's been a pleasure having this conversation. And I will see you all again soon. Thank you so much, Dr. J. Thanks for anchoring every season with your brilliance and light. Thank you all. Dr. Delpit, I'm so deeply grateful for your time this morning and for your scholarship that has grounded the field and the work. And I mean, I helped to open a school in 2003 and we were reading your work and inspired by it. And actually Matt, who I co-founded the school with, had a story about meeting you in the lunch line at a conference at Mission High School. (laughs) And you essentially saying to him what you told us today, which is we're passing the torch, you know, you're the next generation. So I just couldn't be more thankful to spend this time with you and to begin to get to know you. So thank you so much for being with us this morning. Well, you're welcome, Shannon. Thank you so much for thinking to ask me. It has been the highlight of my day. Thank you very much. Thank you.
Street Data is executive produced and hosted by Shane Safir and Alcine Mumby. The senior producer is Maya Cueva, and our associate producer is Alice Lopez. Our production manager is Jamie Valle. Thank you to Zoe Morgan for social media support and Corwin Press for sponsoring us. If you want to learn more about Street Data and get your hands on a copy of the book, visit Amazon, Corwin Press, or better yet, a local, independent, or Black-owned bookstore. If you like the show, remember to subscribe and give us a five-star review. And if you found us rambling or fumbling over our words, remember, we can't be articulate all of the time. You're muted. Uh-oh, we can't hear you. There you go. The button is a great button to have until it's not. <laughs> <laughs>